Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. We're going to talk about navigating our lives in Christ. One of the impressions you get if you read the book of Ephesians, uh, it's going to be the amazing amount of content that is involved. I really believe that uh, the book of Ephesians is ground zero for run-on sentences in the Bible. There is, seriously, the longest run-on sentence in the entire Bible is, I think, in chapter 1. And you could make the case that it go, it continues on. Uh, the only thing that divides it is at the end of chapter 1, there's, there's a prayer. Um, you wonder if the Apostle Paul wasn't thinking that we needed to have the experience of drinking from a fire hydrant, perhaps, when he wrote down this book. Chapter 1, we get an address and a greeting at the beginning of the letter. Uh, in the beginning, also, a very powerful presentation of our situations, uh, God's presence with us, his purpose working for our benefit in an eternal perspective. The entire book of Ephesians is written with a very uh, close hand upon uh, the grasp of eternity and where we are going in, in the very near future. The last part of chapter 1 uh, the Holy Spirit of God is leading the Apostle Paul in prayer for us for two things really specifically that we would receive and even understand the purpose of God at work for us. And that's really exactly where chapter 2 picks up, understanding God's purpose for us. We need to know where we're going. And there, God, the work of God, his hand upon our lives, does not operate in exception to our effort. We have this thing called co-workmanship. We are involved in the work that God has planned. He wants us to be involved. We are engaged in his purpose. And it is a necessary aspect. God cannot do the work in my life that he desires to do if I am not engaged, if I am ignorant and uncaring about what he's doing. I need to be involved. And so, you know, one of the basic principles of navigation you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you are. Now, this is really handy. I know you all have ways on your phone. And when you pick it up and you wonder, where am I going? It tells you right away where you are. See a little dot? That's where I am. It's also impossible to know where you are if you don't know where you've been. We need to remember that. Now, from a technology standpoint, you can know where you are even though you don't know where you've been. But from a realistic human standpoint, you need to know where you've come from. The beginning of verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, the Holy Spirit sums up what really is uh, the focal point, the crux of this whole section for us. This is where you are if you are a believer in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's, that is where we are. It's interesting because we're going to verse 13, and verse 13 reinforces the exact same idea. And he goes through this process of explaining and a number of things that are really important for us here, but he brings us right back to this point. And folks, let me tell you, if you have nothing more in your life as a believer than an amazing grasp of this verse, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, you're doing good. You're doing good as a follower of Jesus Christ. If you have a grasp of that and it's functional and working in your life, you are not at a loss for the hand of God upon you. He says, you, he made alive. Not just anyone, you. Does it ever amaze you the way that God is able to work in the lives of so many people all at the same time? How is it possible that God can actually know 
what's going on in your mind, all of your minds, at the same time. And, and not only that, but your history, your past family. He knows the names of your great-great-grandparents that you don't even know. He knows who they were. He remembers every detail of their lives. And not only that, he knows where you're going for the next whatever you've got, 50 years, 20 years, 10 years, 6 years, whatever it is. He knows every hour of your life and then where you're going to be in eternity. I mean, it, it just kind of blows my mind that he's able to have all that information. For some reason, you are very important to God. You are important to him. You're not just a number, not another one of the you know, endless multitude of voices and complaints out there. You are entirely different from every other person that he has ever created. Entirely, completely unique. And again, not, not by accident or by, you know, if I was going to make 100 billion people and make them all entirely unique and different, I would develop an algorithm so that everyone would be a little bit different and it would just happen by itself and I would never have to, God didn't do that. You see, your uniqueness from the way that you look to the way that you think to who you are in eternity, God designed, developed, and executed himself personally. He did this for you. You are created in the image of God. You are important to him. I always feel like I should, because I know there are a few people here that their, their concept of self-importance is maybe a little bit too serious and I need to say, maybe not that important. But the truth, the truth is the truth. You are important to him. You are amazingly important to him. It says, you he made alive. And he did this with the same purpose and attention that he made you. He has now made you alive. You didn't come to life. This is not physical life. You didn't raise yourself from the dead as Jesus did. You he made alive. You may even remember the exact moment. I do. I remember sitting in my little house in Santa Monica looking at the New American Standard Bible sitting on top of all my record albums and thinking, oh my gosh, everything I know is wrong. I remember that. Sitting there. Freaked me out. And from that moment, I have never been the same. I've been a totally different person. It took a while to catch on, but that's the reality of it. It is what you were made for. It is what you were designed and intended to, which might have been a very simple and straightforward process except for this thing called the fall. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. This is where we are today, folks. Having a spiritual life, you he made alive in a fallen, twisted, crooked, and corrupt world. Strange as that is. Aliens in the place to which we were born. You, not everybody, you specifically, particularly, intentionally, uniquely you, he made alive. Just as he breathed the breath of life into Adam to make him alive as he formed him from the dust of the earth, you he made alive. And then the second part of verse 2, he backs up. And actually from the middle of verse 2 all the way through uh, to verse 3, he's going to focus on this other, this other issue. You he made alive who were dead 
who were dead in trespasses and sins. Our death, the death he's speaking about here, not the death of a physical surrender to mortality, no more than our our life uh, that he made us alive with. It's a spiritual life. We're talking about spiritual death. Um, the Just as the made alive is not the conception or the birth of an infant child, our death here is much worse than physical death. The death that was imprinted upon our lives prior to Christ was charged with eternal significance and the judgment of God was upon us. We were dead. Why? Because we were divorced from the life of God and we were divorced from the truth. Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 4 says of Jesus, in him was life and the life was the light of men. In part because of the choices that we have made and in part because of the estate into which we were born. And when God says, and you he made alive, he is he's saying something. I mean, he's saying something that I'd like to suggest to you. It is nearly beyond your understanding, even if you're really smart. Even if you're really smart, and even if you're really smart and educated. In fact, if you're really smart and educated, it may be an encumbrance to you being able to conceive of what God is doing here, to understand the truth of what he's done. Something that can help you understand what God has done clearly is to understand the second part of, of verse 1, who were dead in trespasses and sin. And to that end, the Holy Spirit, by the hand of the Apostle Paul, he gives us a more detailed view of who and what we have been born out of in verses 2 and 3. And so we're going to talk about that as the situation of death. He says, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature, the children of wrath, just as others. Notice he says in in verse 2, we walked. Now, when you read walk in the scripture, it indicates volition. We're talking about choice. It's not passive. You choose to walk. Nobody can make you walk. Now, somebody can put a gun to your head and make you want to walk, but they can't make you walk. The things that a person is born to in this world are not things that we really bear responsibility for, but the things that we walk in are things that we choose, ignorantly or not. Walking in a thing betrays responsibility. How did we walk? According to the course of this world. That, my friends, is a loaded phrase. According to the course of the world. Not the course of the Lord in this world or the the intended course of this world according to the real course of this world. To be fair, even atheists recognize that the course of this world is a terrible thing. In fact, they actually use the idea as a type of evidence that God, especially the God of the Bible, couldn't possibly exist because the course of this world is so beyond dreadful. It's called the argument of evil against the existence of God. The problem that they have with their argument being that if we remove God and the Bible 
from the conversation. There really is no cohesive understanding among humans, especially among atheists, as to what really qualifies as evil. They can't agree together. And so, you know, without a creator to whom we're responsible, who has communicated to us this objective view of absolute authority and good and evil, good and evil are kind of all over the place and subject to anybody's interpretation. More importantly to us as believers, the biblical perspective, the course of this world, we know it's bad. How bad? How bad is the world? Let me suggest to you that, that it is worse than you can possibly understand. Pick for yourself a situation that you can use as a measure of the evil of our world. Some happening in history, some circumstance, the Holocaust, the cultural revolution, uh, the Manson murders, whatever you would like. Pick something out as an indicator of how evil the world is. Let me suggest to you, if you do that, you're being generous. You're being very generous. The course of this world is worse. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, not his mind, of his heart, were continually evil. Every thought of his heart. That's horrific. Let me suggest to you, I think it's reasonable to understand that God has so placed each one of us in this world in such a, a situation we're inclined in a particular way. Our, our minds work a certain way and we think a particular way. Uh, we don't remember the future. We remember the past. A lot of little things like that. I mean, God could have made us the other way. Seriously, we go through life backward. We're going that way. We only see this way. It's the way it works. Uh, he made us this way. And one of the effects of that is that we are somewhat ignorant of the evil of the world in which we live. Now, why would God want us to be ignorant of the evil of the world? I'll give you two suggestions. Number one, God makes us ignorant of the evil of the world because knowing the evil of this world would practically and realistically make us non-functional as human beings. You would, you would be in fetal position in the corner of your house every hour of every day and unable to get out of the house. So the next time you talk to somebody who's got agoraphobia, don't tell them that they're crazy. They're not crazy. You are. They actually understand what's going on here. It may make them dysfunctional, but that's the truth. That's reality. They've got a handle on it. I'm not going outside. You know what goes on out there? And we, we don't. We don't. God protects us in this way. If we really had a handle on the evil of this world every day, every one of us would have PTSD off the chart. We would be absolutely unfunctional. Second reason that God does this is because that is what a good parent does. A good parent shields their child from information they don't need to know so that they can be functional. They absorb the grief to protect their child. You know? God's direction for us in Romans chapter 16, verse 19, I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Philippians 2.15 says, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He wants us to shine. From a human perspective, we look at the situation of our world and we think, well, it's not really that bad. And from a human perspective, you can make a case. No, it, it's not. 
But honestly, it doesn't help it to be less evil that there are people with good intentions. Let me, let me explain to you. There are people, there are things that we see as legitimately good intentions among people. There are what we would call noble and un- unselfish actions. among. There are also what we would call sincerely innocent people. The problem of this is that the issues don't decrease the evil in the course of this world. They make it worse because these well-intended and unselfish and innocent, they become the victims of their own short-sightedness, of ignorance, and of the evil intentions of others. Because we are, all of us, good, bad, and ugly, subject to our own nature and the situation of this present world. What is the defining characteristic the defining matter in the course of this world, that it operates according to the prince of the power of the air. James chapter 4, verse 4, James speaks to Christians. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Think about that. Look at your life, day by day by day. What are you doing in your life where you are seeking to bring yourself into a situation where you are a friend of this present world. If you do that, you're making yourself, by gradation, the enemy of God in what you do to be the friend of the world. Think about it. The course of this world is inseparable from this person, the prince of the power of the air. He is the driving force behind its purpose and the defining character and its function. It's interesting to me here, as you read these verses, also in Second, Second Corinthians, talking about the same guy and other places, uh, how very restrained the Holy Spirit is with reference to this issue and this individual. Notice here, there's no name-calling. The closest thing you find to an insult in Scripture of this particular individual has to do with his name, the accuser of the brethren, spirit against God. The, those things are just descriptions of his character. But he's not insulted in Scripture. Uh, The important details are all we have. Who's who? What's what? Which is, for us, it's the example that the Lord has set for us in Scripture. We don't need to puff out our chest and pump our fists in the air. It's not about us. The battle belongs to the Lord. And he will see to it in his time. 2 Peter 2.11 tells us, Angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. In Jude, verse 9, Michael, the archangel, who, let me suggest to you, this is a guy, a person, an angel, who has powers and ability that are far beyond anything you could ever imagine in this world, all right? And what is he, Michael, the archangel, contending with the devil when disputed about the body of Moses, dared not, notice, dared not bring a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Romans 12, 19 tells us, Beloved, don't avenge yourself. Let somebody do it who can do a real job. Give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, you know, when you hear men, speak, and you will hear them, speaking sarcastically, even insultingly about principalities and powers in heavenly places, evil though they may be, you should ask yourself a couple of questions. One, is this the way the Lord would have me refer to these things? And secondly, does the Lord want me to be influenced by people who follow this pattern? I don't think so. I don't think it's a good idea. The fact that we're seeking to follow God's direction in how we understand these things, these individuals, 
never means that we are confused about who we're dealing with. We are not confused. On the other hand, people who fail to follow the Scripture will be confused, not only about who they're dealing with and what their problem is and what the opposition and the warfare in their life is about, but they will be confused about what's going on in their life. 2 Corinthians 11 for no wonder, for Satan transforms himself into the angel, into an angel of light. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the father of lies. He is the torturer and murderer of small children. All you have to do is look at Syria. It is his purpose to corrupt every good thing. But because of the Lord's hand at work in our lives in an even greater way than we now see, he is limited in what he can do so that the Holy Spirit identifies him as the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. You know, rebellion is such a a powerful and and a popular thing in our world today. It is idolized, you know, with the images of the uh, coward murderer Che Guevara, uh, James Dean, even Ellen DeGeneres. The idea of rebellion has been weaponized into our culture from the time where small children were seduced by Robin Hood and Jack Sparrow. And really, I mean, before we're able to understand the ideas that are in play, we start to see authority as the problem or a part of the problem, and rebellion as the cure. And, you know, in just such a world, the sons of disobedience become heroes. The sons of disobedience kind of sounds like a motorcycle club. (laughs) Notice, this spirit, the prince of the power of the air, works in these people, not around them or upon them, although I'm sure he does that also. It's very personal. And in some ways, the central aspect of who they are and what they do, almost like slaves, as Jesus says in, in John chapter 8, those who commit sin become the slaves of sin. They have no choice in the matter, just as we, prior to Christ, had no choice in our lives creating havoc for the truth. But again, before we go off condemning these poor, confused, deluded souls, verse 3 reminds us, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, just as others. Notice here that Paul includes himself. This has got to be disturbing to people who look at their past before Christ and think, well, you know, I wasn't really that bad. I mean, I know you were, you were terrible and you used drugs and you people, you were very, well, who knows, but I really wasn't that bad. Well, you, well, you know, you probably weren't as good as the Apostle Paul, not least in human terms, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as regarding the law, blameless. So this, you know, it puts everybody in the same company, which is exactly what the Holy Spirit intends. It also gives us a different view in conducting ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And for some reason in in the Western world, maybe it's just an English-speaking culture, but whenever you hear the lust of the flesh, everybody thinks sexuality right away. And that's not the case. I mean, if Paul is a part of this company... Uh, then it's certainly not a reference to sexual activity. Paul was not your average party animal. We understand here that the lust of the f- our flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, don't have to be physical. I mean, they can be. Certainly, we live in a culture that worships sex. Actually, 
uses, has weaponized sexuality to turn people into consumers. And everything's about consumerism in this culture. And if you, you can't see advertising without seeing sexual innuendo and constantly pounded upon you. So much so that you become numb to it. You become numb. People say, yeah, I watched this thing. And, Whoa, it's just bad, you know? and, and you look at it and go, what? Yeah, it's not, it's not them. It's you. Numb. We become numb. It can also be non-physical things. Like, oh, I don't know, like obsessive control of your life situation. You lay awake in bed at night obsessing because you can't control things in your life. You you need to read Luke chapter 21 where Jesus condemns drunkenness right next to those who are caught up in cares and worries. worries. the worship of the opinions of other people, worry about what other people think of you. This is horror. You know, the fear of man is a snare. It's ugly. It's, you know, for no good reason. Idolatry, covetousness. First John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away. Thank you, Lord. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So, you know, we see here there's a very broad perspective from this verse in First John. The problem, I mean, you'd really be hard-pressed to find some area of sin that doesn't fit into those two verses. The consequence could not possibly be any more serious. Passing away here refers to the ultimate judgment of God, making us, as it says back in Ephesians 2, not by coincidence or by circumstance, but by nature, making us by nature, the essence of what we are, making us before we knew Christ, by nature, the children of wrath, just as others. Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 6, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. You don't want to join that motorcycle club. This is not a small thing, folks. It's not the exception, it's the rule. The world that you live in, the culture... Everything about the culture. You guys, you live in a world that worships human culture. Every little kind of, you know, little obscure, the smaller and more disenfranchised the culture, the the greater they try and pop. Human culture is a sickness. It's part of the problem. It really is. And I come from an Italian family, I think. You know, and seriously, you know, and people love their culture. I'm sure we can dump Italian culture and keep the food. I'm really hopeful. You know, I would hate to see the world without Italian sausage. Human culture is a problem. It's a sickness. It's, It's created by humans. Not a small issue. Not the exception. The world we live in is going to hell on a jet plane. And you don't want to see it. You do not want to see any part of it. In some ways, there's nothing that we can do about it. The Lord has given us the word beforehand. It's a done deal. It's over. But this is the situation of death, common estate of all mankind, except for one thing, except for the method of God, except for God's presence in our lives. And so in verses 4 to 10, we're going to look at the method of God. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But God. Some of the most powerful and poignant statements in the course of human history start out with those two words. But God. He is the difference between Psalm 1611. You will show me the path of life in your presence is the fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Matthew 8, 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The root of this issue can be found all over the scripture. But I think maybe most accessibly, Romans chapter 8, verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death. And in that word death, folks, there is an endless cornucopia of hell and destruction. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace, which is the presence of God Almighty. The reason that our minds are moved from the carnal to the spiritual is but God, because of God. His character, His attributes, His purpose at work, not only in our lives, but in the lives of of men and women all around the world. We are moved by God's work and His presence in the lives of people. You know, you never know when God will use you to be an example to some person. In fact, if you did know it, it might not be good for you. You might be, well, I'm just an example. But reality, God uses you all the time. You know, you can, you can also use something that's really bad as an example. Like, don't, don't go there. God shows up in the lives of men and women every day. And it is amazing. Every uh, first Sunday of the month, which is today, by the way, I get to go to a little convalescent home in Alhambra, and I do a Bible study for about 10 or 15 old people. Um, And uh, they're very interesting. I I think I've been doing it for close to 20 years. And uh, it's, it's, I think it's probably one of the better things that I get to do in ministry. I go in and I just share about a half an hour. I teach a little Bible study to them. Some years ago, probably, I don't know, eight, ten years ago, hard to tell, um, there was a little old lady who was 100 years old that used to come in every Sunday, every first Sunday of the month and when I taught. And this one week, she, she always had the habit of, like, scooting her chair up right next to me, almost touching me and sitting there, you know. And so one Sunday, she, she scoots her chair up, she comes over, and she sits down right next to me, and she grabs my side, and she says, she says to me, she says, you know, honey, um... I'm completely deaf. I, I really, I can't hear anything at all. But I know that if I get close enough to you, that the Lord will minister to me. I look forward to seeing her when I, when I go to be with the Lord. You know, it's just, uh, people, people will be examples to you, you know, and when they are, you will never forget it for the rest of your life. God, who is rich in mercy, in verse 4, because of his great love with which he loved us, 
Here in verse 4 is a cornerstone of the nature of God. He loves us sacrificially to his own great expense, a greater expense than you and I will probably ever know. In this verse, the Holy Spirit tells us a couple of things. And like many things that the Scripture tells us about God, God tells us about himself, they are not things that we will understand entirely in this world. But we can't be frustrated by that fact. They are things we need to meditate upon and think about and consider and allow the effect to influence and, and to shape us. Just like the lady at the convalescent home who couldn't understand the words that I was saying, but she was confident and had faith and confidence in God that he was able to minister to her in spite of that. You know, we don't understand so much of what God tells us about his nature and his person, but the things we can understand, we need to seize upon them and hold them. We need this like we need water every day in in large quantities. And in fact, if you don't like water, you better start drinking some water because it's good for you. Allowing the ideas to affect who we are has a huge, powerful, and a perceptible effect day by day. God, who is rich in mercy. Let's define mercy. Mercy is a desire on God's part to save us from consequences that we have in one way or another purchased for ourselves that we deserve. And then beyond the desire, it is his initiative and then the means to deliver our lives from those same consequences and the death that follows after them. God is rich in mercy. How rich? The answer, more than you could possibly understand. Psalm 32.10 says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord mercy shall surround him. I love that. I want to have mercy surrounding my life. Psalm 33.18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. They have an attitude of heart and mind that is seeking for God's mercy to cover them. Psalm 32, 33, 22, Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. Psalm 57, 10, For your mercy reaches into the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Truth goes to the clouds. Heavens are much further. Heavens go forever. God's mercy goes forever. Psalm 136, God's mercy endures forever, shows up 36 times in 36 verses. God is rich in mercy, which is a good thing to be rich in, especially good for you and I. And if you think it is a small issue, then let me suggest to you that you don't really know who you are if you don't rely upon the mercy of God. Verse, the second part of verse 4, because of his great love with which he loved us. In this part of verse 4, the love of God is identified as the motivating factor, the thing that moves God to be so merciful. How much does God love us? Again, more then you're able to understand. God's love is great. He is infinite. He chooses to identify himself, his nature, with love. In 1 John 4, 8, he who does not love does not know God. God is love. The Bible, from cover to cover, folks, is an expression of God's love for people. Even in judgment, even when God brings consequences and judgment upon men, God's purpose is first to turn those who will turn to the truth and then protect those that he can save from the harm that they would suffer being exposed to the death of a contagious rebellion, even though he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. This is not something that appeals to him. And what did this great mercy and love cause God to do in verse 5? Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. 
made alive together with Christ, raised up with Christ, made to sit in heavenly places. These are all things with a current application. These are things that are happening now. You're a Christian. You're in Christ. Where's Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father. You're in Him. How does that work? Don't ask me. I have no idea. But that's the situation. That's exactly what he is saying. We are seated together with Christ in the presence of God. Verse 7, there's a reference really to a future situation. Specifically, things that he wants to show us in the days to come. Actually, in the ages to come. He wants to show us what? The exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us. I actually am kind of looking forward to that. Notice, it is every, all of these things work, folks, as you and I are connected to Jesus. In verse 5, alive together with Christ. Verse 6, raised up with together. Verse 6b, made us sit together in the heavenlies. Places in Christ Jesus. In verse 7, the ages to come, showing us riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. We need to understand the importance of how we are connected to Christ. And how do you connect, how do you connect yourself to Jesus? You do it with this. You do it as you pray. You do it spending time with other brothers and sisters, other believers in Christ. You do it maybe most importantly by focusing your thinking upon the Lord, by meditating on the Word of God. This is why, you know, in Psalm 1, it talks about a person who meditates day and night in the Scripture, that everything they set their hand to prospers. Okay? Those things are essential. We have to have that. By doing the things God's called us to do, by sharing the gospel, making disciples, by partaking of communion, as we did this past Thursday, those things are all essential to us being attached to Christ. We read in the Scripture, we understand that God has given us eternal life. That's true. But you have to understand something, and this is important. You don't have eternal life in and of yourself. The only one that has immortality is God. And that's what it says in in 1 Timothy 6.16. God who alone has immortality. You have immortality, it's because you're attached to the person of Jesus Christ. Do we see ourselves or think of ourselves as connected to Jesus in this way throughout the average day? I need to. I need that. They call it practicing the presence of the Lord. And it has a dramatic effect on how your day goes. I realize that there are going to be little glitches, like when you get on the freeway and people are rude, and, or you know when you're sitting down to eat dinner and the phone rings and it's a recording. Or Those things happen, I understand. Practicing the presence of the Lord. I need that. This is the doctrine of the church at work in our lives. Notice that he has done all this while, what does it say in verse 5? Even we were dead in trespasses and sin. This, you know, it describes our condition. But more than that, it was an active lifestyle. I don't know about you. I didn't, I didn't slow down my sin nature so God could work. I was in the fast lane. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like the sinners who are nailing his wrists onto the cross for which he died. God is not about reciprocating. It's not tit for tat. He doesn't return in kind. He doesn't do unto others as they've done unto him. He gets out in front of the whole mess. And what does the scripture say? Jesus in, in Matthew seven twelve. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, you first. You be selfless. Those people who have been rude to you, 
people who are unkind, people who don't like you and you don't know why, I'll tell you why. Because you're in the middle of spiritual warfare. They may not even know that you're a Christian. They just don't like you. They don't know why. They go home at night and they go, why do I hate that guy so much? Man, it's just, I don't know why. That's why. Part of the deal. This is not your home. You're attached to Jesus. It's also one of the reasons that people have such a difficult time understanding God's purpose. Selflessness is alien to us. Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, self-interest is the enemy of all true affection. And I really, I love, I love that quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. Not too fond of FDR, but even a broken clock is right twice a day. Um, agape love, which is exactly what it is, sacrificial love from God is focused on the benefit to others as we should be. It should, all, everything should be about others and not about ourselves. And this is hard, especially if you're dealing with selfish people. How do you be selfish when, when people are all day long selfish and then you're supposed to be selfless? Is that fair? Is that reasonable? Is that what God would have us do? Yes. It is exactly what he would have you do. Don't worry about them. Let God deal with them. Vengeance is mine. He'll take care of it. Pray for them. God has been ever focused upon our benefit through his mercy, shielding us from consequence that we certainly would have brought upon ourselves. But God's love goes way beyond, beyond protecting us from damage to providing for us a benefit, a profit, prosperity, attainment, advancement. God gives us gravy, eternal gravy, none of which we deserve by any possible imagination. We deserve the consequence. We deserve judgment. One of the greatest things about teaching the high school group here, being over in the gym, have all those kids in there, and every Sunday I could tell them, you know, Pastor Xavier deserves to go to hell. And they would no way. Not Pastor Xavier. How is that possible? Your mom and dad deserves to go to hell. And they will go, yeah. Because we're attached to Christ, because we abide in Christ, he calls this grace. He mentioned it in verse 5, by grace you've been saved. And then here in verse 8, he gives us the details. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace in the biblical sense is favor from God that is not deserved. Unmerited favor. Not only is it not deserved, by definition... It cannot be deserved or partially deserved or more deserved or less deserved. It cannot be deserved by any person under our circumstances. Favor given by God that would be theoretically deserved would be by definition reckoned as debt, not grace. And the scripture assures us no person fits that description. First Timothy 2.5, there's one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, for all for everybody, to be testified to in due time. We all are here today as witnesses to this truth. God paid the ransom for our souls by grace through faith. Grace made available through the operation of saving faith. God reveals himself to those that are willing to believe. It says in Romans chapter 4, 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all, the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We receive it by faith. We trust in God, and he provides it, and it is unmerited. 
John 7, 17, great example. Jesus speaking to the religious leaders. He says, if anyone wants to do his will, in other words, if you want to follow this, you want to do what it says, then he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Is that what happened to you? You see, I picked up the book and I wanted to follow it. And right about that time, God spoke to me and I knew where it was coming from. It's the way it works, John 7, 17. We have a choice. At the same time, we know that no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent Christ draws him. What does he say in the last part of 8? Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We take no credit. Apart from Christ, as it says in a few verses here, we would be utterly without hope. You know, folks, sometimes I look at the world around me and I see, I really believe... And I might be wrong. Who knows? I really see the world that we live in here in the Western world, a profound and extreme moral collapse taking place all around. I think I think really that it is the result in no small degree of the hopelessness, which is a huge deal. I know that before I accepted Christ, I was at a total loss as to why I was taking up space in the universe. I had no answer. The answer is Christ. The only answer that there ever could be, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so let's take an opportunity, not of works, to drive a stake into the heart of every religious system that's ever existed. Not of works. You can't do it because it is from birth beyond you. You are born to corruption in a corrupt world from a corrupt family. I was in a corrupt culture, in a corrupt nation. The Apostle Paul knew what he was talking about here after spending years of labor under Judaism to make himself a man acceptable to God. He tried harder and harder and did more and more to serve God, to make himself acceptable, did more than all his contemporaries. And what did it do for him? No, it did more than nothing. It did more than nothing. It put him in a position where he was imprisoning, torturing, and taking the lives of people that were really serving God. How's that work for you? I mean, people would love to see it otherwise. I mean, people, you know, you look at this guy Bill Maher on television and so many others that just exalt in humanism and human, human ability, you know, human culture, human learning and wisdom to bow the knee to human grace, you know, the greatness of mankind, and boldly proclaim, we really did come from monkeys. You know, yeah. And if you, you know, you watch them long enough, you start to wonder. The problem here as it is with any religious system, the law of Moses or any other, if I have a determining influence on the outworking of God's plan of salvation, I would, just like the children of Israel, burn the whole thing to the ground. I would corrupt God's purpose with all my amazing human ability. In the same way, you know, the, the pinnacle of Judaism at the close of the, the beginning of the first century, about seven, before 70 A.D., God comes to Jerusalem and the chief priests and the elders kill him. The pinnacle of Judaism. Didn't work out. Didn't work out the way they thought. Fortunately for us, that's not the end, is it? The story, three days later, Christ raised from among the corpses of this world and we are new creatures in Christ. Verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are his workmanship. What a thing. 
See, Jesus knew you were going to accept him. He knew you were going to be a believer. He prepared inside of you before you were born, before your parents knew each other, before, yeah, before that, before anything. He prepared you to be his servant. He equipped you. He has given you spiritual gifts. You are his workmanship inside and out. Created in Christ Jesus. You are created in Christ Jesus. That other guy is long gone. I mean, realistically, he may poke his head up every once in a while. Just walk him back to the cross. Guy's got no future because you are attached to Jesus because you have been created in Christ to a purpose. You've been created for a reason, for good works. We see that even though we're not saved by works, we are brought into the family of Christ to a specific purpose that we might serve God with good works. But even then, they are the works that the Lord has prepared for us to walk in. Keep in mind, these things that God has called you to do, whatever they are, doesn't mean that they're going to be easy or that they're going to be without opposition. If you're going to offer yourself in service to God in anything, there's going to be some cost attached to it. For example, worshiping God in church. You come into church. There are people playing music. And you have a choice. You can sit there and listen and think about what you're going to eat for lunch. Or you can actually close your eyes, try and forget where you are, focus your mind entirely. It's a little bit of work. Focus your mind on the Lord and worship him without any concern for who's sitting around you or what your voice sounds like and just sincerely worship God. What percentage of people who come here on a weekly basis you think do that? I don't really want to know. But I would hope a lot. It's work. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen automatically. But it's important. There's a cost involved. Doing ministry is inconvenient. If you're going to get involved in some ministry at your church, you're going to have meetings when you want to go do something else. Even when sometimes when you have to do something else. We live in a battlefield, folks. It's a battle that we've been called to. At the same time, it's one thing to be in a battlefield and quite another to be in a battlefield and forget why you're there. Dangerous. Something we cannot afford. And so in verses 11 through 13, the reminding of man. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what's called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. As verse 11 starts here, the Holy Spirit is making the case that in response to the amazing and the wonderful things that God has done for us, that we have an obligation to remember to remember, to be mindful, not just to remember without focus. He wants us to remember some very specific things. First, in verse 11, he wants us to remember that we were here what we were like before we came to Christ. A little less detail than he covered in verses 2 and 3, and from a slightly different perspective, that we were Gentiles in the flesh. Now, this is interesting because the word Gentile here is not used to indicate non-Jewish. It's a euphemism for a non-believer. And it shows up in the same usage in a number of different places in the New Testament, if you notice. 
the people in Ephesus, many of them were not Jews. And I'm sure when they accepted Christ, they didn't instantly become Jewish. They were still technically Gentiles, but they were believers. And so he's using the word as an indicator for non-believers. Romans uh, 4.16 talks about, you know, the fact that we are all uh, the children of Abraham. The second part of the verse is really a parenthesis where he mentions that we should remember that we were called uncircumcision, which, of course, is a reference to the term used by the Jewish people to discredit and to distance themselves from Christians that were not Jewish. Probably applies to most of the believers in Ephesus. But the Holy Spirit turns it around and mocks the Jews with this term, called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision made in the flesh by hands. He wants us to remember that where our opposition is from. It's not from the Lord, not from a legitimate source, not from an unbiased opinion. Our opposition is from a group that justifies themselves by nothing more than outward appearance. And we should remember this when we see people seeking to discredit believers today on the basis of appearance. To be fair, you know, we're not unconcerned with appearances. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.22 tells us to abstain from all appearance of evil in the uh, King James. At the same time appearances can be deceiving, Jesus in John chapter 7.24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Appearance can indicate a deeper problem. We don't want to ignore appearances, but at the same time, appearance is not truly what God is concerned with. Back in verse 12, Ephesians 2.12, he lists four things. From our past life. First, we were without Christ. Right to the heart. Right to the heart. You're going to be somewhere in a thousand years. A thousand years from today, you are going to be somewhere. And I really hope that it's somewhere around me. I can say hi to you. We can have a talk. And you can say, remember you said a thousand years from today that I would be here. We are. And we'll have, you know, we'll spend a minute and go see the Lord. And uh, it'll be really great. A thousand years from today, there's going to be one thing that's significant in your life how you are connected to Jesus. Now, in reality, that is the only thing that's important today also. But it is a little bit more difficult to see in this environment. But it's the truth. We were without Christ. We were lost. 1 John 5.12 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Secondly, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. That is, we were cut off from the amazing work that God's done throughout the ages past. And God has done miracles. You guys, God does miracles every hour and every day. Do you know that you have forgotten more of the miracles that God has done in your life than you can remember? You really have. God has done amazing and fabulous things in your life. If you could only recall them all, write them down, please. It is our heritage to be attached to the wonders that God has done. We cannot do without it. Thirdly, we were strangers from the commonwealth of promise. And really, this is a reference to the covering of protection that God has provided to our ancestors throughout the ages. Real people, and they're all somewhere today, all these people that you were related to. You know, your great-great-grandparents whose names you don't know. Or if somebody said, who's this a picture of? You would have no idea, unfortunately. And many of them were believers and they followed the Lord and they trusted in the Lord and they were real people, people of real character. We are all descended from the children of Noah, every one of us. And that may seem trivial to you. It's not. 
These men were giants of character and integrity. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He condemned the world by his work and his conduct. Adam walked with God. We are all descended from Adam. This is your family, fashioned by God in preparation for the day of the Lord. You see, they were at the beginning. They started things going. They set up a great foundation. They've given us a tremendous benefit. It's like, a, like in the 4 by 100 relay. Where do you put the really good runners? That's why you're here. That's why you are here. Because God has purposed for you specific things that you need to do. We're going to close this mess out, guys. The day of the Lord is going to be our day. He has purposed that you should be the one to serve him and represent your family at this hour when all things will be revealed. And we cannot take that lightly. Finally, he states that before Christ, we had no hope in the world. You know, folks, when I look at the world, I see people that are so so selfish and so twisted that it's becoming a common thing for people even to not care for their own small children. I mean, it started out as abortion, something done by doctors and nurses prescribed by convenience. But if you look at the news every single week, there are stories of people killing their own small children by neglect and worse. Take a minute and Put yourself in the mind of a three-year-old who's been put in a cage and denied food. Don't stay there too long. Why? Because they're no longer human. They have de-evolved. Having no hope and without God in the world, very, very dark place. They are left to their own designs. They are the family of Stephen Hawking and Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens. Give them a little bit of rope and see what happens. I don't think it's going to be macrame. But that is not, that is not who we are. Thank you, Lord. But now you are in Christ. You who once were far off have been brought near. And God did this at no small expense. The terms of his sacrifice are in many ways beyond our understanding. Remember that. Remind yourself. But at the same time, there is something that we can see and understand that he was, that was done. It was done by the blood of Christ. Leviticus chapter 17, 11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given to you upon the altar to make atonement for your soul, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. It has been God's plan from before Adam's sin, and only he could accomplish it. You could not do it. God did it. And still, you know, people spend so much time and energy worrying, trying to figure out how it is that they're going to perfect themselves as believers in Christ. Let me help you out. You're not going to do it. You can't do it. You're not going to perfect yourself as a Christian. Well, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do anything either. Remember, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the larger purpose at work. And it is a larger purpose than we will be able to understand until we're in the Lord's presence. 
And you, you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. The situation of death, where we were lost and without hope, the method of God, the miracle that he alone could bring to pass, and the reminding of man, the urgent need for every follower of Christ to be mindful of the things above. Folks, let us be mindful of the things above. Colossians 3.1 tells us that we need to be mindful of the things above. Where Christ sits at the right hand of the Father because our life is in him and when he appears, you will be with him in glory. Very soon. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for being here with us today for your word. For what an amazing thing it is. Father, Strengthen our hearts to hear your voice clearly and understand your purpose, Lord. You know how confused we are in so many ways. And there are all these influences all the time, Lord, trying to confuse us. Strengthen our understanding. Open the eyes of our understanding to receive the input that you intend for us, Lord, that we would be your faithful servants, that we would see things for what they are, Lord, that we would see good and evil and recognize and not be lulled to sleep by the garbage of our world. Father, draw us close to yourself. Strengthen our hearts. And Lord, make us, make us more and more into the image of Jesus day by day. As we're all praying together, if you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the Lord brought you here to this, this study today that you might come to faith in Christ. And we want to give you an opportunity before you leave here today that you might humble yourself And if God has spoken to your heart through his word, you can do that. In just a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer. And I ask you to repeat after me, even if you're watching over the Internet, repeat this prayer. And if you are sincere, the Lord will show up into your life in a powerful way. He will begin that work of confirming his purpose and his plan at work in you to give you that new life that he intends. If you want to receive Christ, repeat this prayer after me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Give me a new life in Jesus Christ. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.